us this morning is Pastor John Hawkins. He's down the road at York. He's at Arbor Drive Baptist Church in York, Nebraska. So let's welcome back Pastor John. Thank you very much. Um, if you have a Bible, turn in it to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be at chapter 9 this morning. So, uh, <clears throat> my understanding is you guys are sort of working through the Gospel of Mark uh, in sequential order, which is really helpful uh, because you guys will know that, uh, that what has preceded this is Jesus has done a series of uh, uh, miracles. He's, he's um, fed the 4,000. He's healed a blind man. And he has just been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are with him. They see his glory. They, uh, he reveals who he is to them in a particular way. And our text this morning uh, ha happens as they are coming down off the Mount of Transfiguration. So Peter, James, and John went up there with Jesus, and, and the others hung out down at the bottom of the mountain. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, uh, you're going to know that Moses went up onto Mount Sinai. He visited with God and then would come down out of Mount, uh, off of Mount Sinai to the crowds of people. And uh, when he would do that, his face would shine, right? He was, he was encountering the glory of God. His face was shining. There's something different about him. And uh, at one time in particular, when he came down off the mountain, there was a, a lot of chaos going on in the camp as, as things were not doing well in the, uh, in the camp of the Israelites. And what we see here in our text this morning is that Jesus comes down off the mountain, and what we're going to see is we're going to see the, the sinfulness of man. We're going to see Christ address that sinfulness. We're going to see uh, uh, an imperfect plea for help, and then we're going to see the compassion and grace of God as he works through imperfect faith. So this is the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. And when they, that's the disciples, came to, the, or when they came to the disciples, this is the crowd, uh, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up and greeted him. And he, as Jesus, asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. 
But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to him, this kind can be driven out. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. What a crazy thing it must have been to follow Jesus around, right? Like, can you imagine being in this type of situation? You go from seeing the literally the glory of God shining on the face of Christ and the Father uh speaking and and elijah and moses up there on the mountain and you go down to this crazy crowd with this kid that's possessed by a demon that's causing him to have these fits and foam at the mouth i mean what a wild ride that must have been following jesus but yet at the same time what we see is that even as the disciples were following jesus it wasn't like they were changed immediately. It wasn't like they just encountered him and then all of a sudden became like him. There was a process. There was a learning process. And Jesus was constantly teaching them. We see four things in this text. First, we see the unbelief. Or we see that unbelief is expressed in the sinfulness of man. We see that in verses 14 to 18. When they came down... To the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, scribes arguing. So first of all, we have an cr- arguing crowd. Mark does not go into detail about what they're arguing about. It could have possibly been that the disciples had tried to cast out the demon and it didn't work, so they were arguing about that or whether the scribes were able to do it. There's, but there is, there's a big stir going on right down there. There's an, a crowd that's arguing. And so we see that in a fallen world, we are going to have conflict. There's going to be disagreements. There's going to be arguments. But then it moves a step further. So not only are they arguing about something, but it says that um, they came to him and, uh, and greeted him. And he asked, what are you arguing about? And then someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son. For He has a spirit that makes him mute. So we have a possessed boy. A, a boy that has been possessed by an evil spirit from the time he was very young and a helpless father. A father can do nothing about it. That's, got, that's, a, that's a terrifying situation for a parent to be in. You've got your child that's suffering and you can do absolutely nothing to help them. And in a fallen world with fallen people, that's the case, isn't it? We, get in, we, we have situations, we have sickness, we have illness, we have... Uh, afflictions, we have temptation, there are things in our lives that we are absolutely powerless to affect any change in. And then we see the sin uh, of uh, the sin of belief, unbelief expressed in the sinfulness of man in the 
inability of the disciples. The disciples had tried to cast this demon out. Now, earlier, Jesus had given the disciples authority to cast out demons, so it's not like they were operating outside of their scope of authority. It's not like Jesus was keeping this ministry of exorcism to himself and wasn't allowing them to do it. No, they, they had done it before. And my suspicion is, as you read the text, I think this kind of is implied, they maybe got a little bit boastful about it, maybe a little bit prideful. I mean, good grief, we were able to cast out demons. And, and here's Jesus, he's gone. Well, if he's gone, we should, we should probably do this thing. So the boy, boy comes and they try to do it and then, then they can't do it. Now they've got a problem because their pride has been wounded. They've been doing this. They're in front of a whole crowd and now they've got to explain why they were unable to cast this demon out of this boy. So I think there's hints of pride. There's the inability of the disciples here. And all of this is meant, I think, by Mark to highlight our own weakness and inability. We live in a fallen world. The picture here is a picture of chaos and a picture of inability. And Jesus steps into that chaos and that inability and does something about it. Right? If Jesus had not shown up, who knows how this would have transpired, but there would have continued to be chaos and the, the boy would not have been healed. The best shot that this kid had apart from Jesus was the disciples and they couldn't do it. The father's powerless. Everybody's arguing. So I think we see unbelief expressed in the sinfulness of man. And this is the, this is the water that we swim in, right? Uh, it, it's like that thing where how, does a, how do you tell a fish that they're wet? It's, they're, that's just their, it's where they are. That's what they know. It's so natural to them that it's hard for them even to to be able to comprehend. And the same thing is true of us. We live in a sinful, broken world. We are sinful, broken people, and we live among sinful, broken people. And in the midst of that, Jesus, in verse 19, steps in to address the chaos of sin and unbelief. Verse 19, Jesus, he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long are, uh, am I going to bear with you? Now, I don't know about you, but when I first picture this, I pictured like an exasperated Jesus, like irritated, like, oh, you guys are idiots. I, I mean, you couldn't cast this demon out. Like, how long do I have to hang out with you guys? You guys are, ugh. right? But I don't think that's what's happening here. I think what's happening here is he's, he's communicating a sense of urgency, he knows he has a limited time here on earth. It's not like, how long do I have to put up with you? It's, how long do I have to put up with you? you I'm not going to be around very long. And, and the, the progress of faith needs to get to a certain point before Jesus ascends to heaven because these are the dudes that, that God is going to build the church around. I mean, these are the dudes that are going to be the ones going out as missionaries. These are going to be the guys that are uh, the apostles. The point here is that God doesn't leave us in our sin and unbelief. This lament of Jesus shows his exasperation with an unbelieving and quarrelsome crowd where he seems to be the lone, faithful one among a sea of unbelievers. And yet at the same time, I think it expresses an urgency. How long 
His, his time on earth is short. But the point is that Jesus steps into that chaos. He rebukes their faithlessness. Now, God does the same thing for His church, and He does the same thing for unbelievers. God will lovingly rebuke faithlessness because this rebuke is a loving rebuke, right? This is, it would be supremely unloving to leave them in their unbelief. To leave them in the chaos. So Jesus steps into this and, and exposes and addresses their unbelief in sin. And the problem, as we're going to see, is it's not so much how much faith they had, but where their faith was placed. It's not how much they believed, but who they believed in. Jesus will always expose unbelief. I mean, he confronts it head on in the gospel, right? Here we are wandering around dead in our trespasses and sins. I mean, the gospel confronts our sin. It confronts our unbelief. It confronts our rebellion. We have gone our own way, loved other things more than him, pursued other things as a replacement for him, sought salvation and things apart from him, and yet he points that out. He points out the folly of sin and unbelief. He points out the reality of it. If it were not for that, we would not know. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that if God had not said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, you might not even know that you sin and fall short of the glory of God. The only way that sin is exposed is if God reveals it and it confronts it. And in that, he comes down, he lives a perfect life, he dies in the place of rebels and rises again and, and will return. And through trusting in his death on our behalf, we are counted as righteous and brought into fellowship with him. And so when we are confronted with our unbelief, there's always a solution that's presented by Christ. And the solution is always Christ. So there are, there are two responses then that are available to the solution of Christ. The first is persist in and continue in unbelief after it's exposed. But there's another option, and that's the option that we see in this Father. And I, I think that this is one of the most beautiful pictures in Scripture of how we sometimes need to learn to respond. And it's an example of imperfect but authentic faith. So here's the crowds. They're, they're arguing. They're going crazy. There's unbelief. Jesus comes down, finds out that there's this demon-possessed boy. The disciples have tried to cast the demon out. There's arguing. There's bickering, everything else. He, he addresses the unbelief. He rebukes the unbelief. And now he moves to talk to this this. Uh, this father who's just absolutely desperate. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Now, as, the, as a dad, right? So this kid is apparently not, I mean, he's kind of in a, in a steady state right now. The, the demon hasn't got him going. And it, as soon as the, the spirit sees Jesus, it takes hold of this boy and causes him to convulse on the ground. Now, as a, as a dad, you're looking at your child convulsing on the ground. You've asked for help. You're absolutely 
desperate for somebody to do something to help your child. And Jesus does not even bat an eyelash. He doesn't even give any focus. In fact, he focuses on the father. The boy is flailing about right next to him, and Jesus asks the father in verse 20 long, how long has this been happening? And the father explains, and Mark goes into great detail, I think meant to help us to understand the pain and desperation of this father who loved his child. It's been going on from childhood. It's resulted in him being thrown into fires and thrown into water, trying to kill him. In this, in this culture where fire is literally essential and in every home, Never grows out of it. It's not like a toddler who can be taught. Stay away from the fire. Just, uh, this, this father is just absolutely desperate. And you hear the desperation now. He says, if you can do anything. Jesus asked some probing questions. And all of this is meant to reveal the depth of the problem. And the father's desperate plea, I think, reveals the depth of the problem. Because the plea is... If you can. That is very different than will you. Those are two very different things. This father is skeptical. He's not sure if Jesus can actually do it. I mean, after all, the disciples failed. If you can exposes the unbelief. Now think back to Mark chapter 1, verse 40, where, the Je- where Jesus heals the leper. If you, in fact, just go over there real quick. Mark chapter 1, verse 40, the leper comes up to him. And what does the leper say to him? And leper came, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, let's just contrast these two real quick. The, the leper says, I'm not sure if you're willing to, but I know that you can. And then the father seems to be saying, I know that you're willing to, but I just don't know if you can. Jesus is exposing this unbelief and putting it on display. One of these approaches limits God's ability. The other recognizes that while absolutely able, God's good, sovereign, wise will and plan might not line up with the request. One is filled with faith. The other one is lacking faith. One doubts. One is confident. So we see the leper has this confidence in the ability of Christ, and the father is struggling with that. I think that's what James was talking about when he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, but let him ask in faith without wavering. It's asking him with a confident assurance that he is able to provide the wisdom we stand in need of. And this father is still not believing in Christ. There is doubt as to the ability of Christ. Is he like his disciples? Is he like everybody else that's tried to heal this boy? 
He isn't asking, will you? He's asking, can you, if you are able? He's concerned about possibility. And a lot of this comes back to how we live too, right? You think about the object of our faith. Think about what or who we believe in. This text is about the object of our faith. Is Jesus able? Is Jesus powerful enough? Is God powerful enough? And how we view God and what we believe about God matters and impacts how we live our lives. Listen, and, and I get it, right? Like I'm, I'm pushing 40, not there yet. So I'm past the threshold of coolness. I'm moving into like being too much like your parents, right? And, and yet I also am young enough to remember exactly what it was like to live in high school and middle school and just out of, just out of high school and into college. And I remember what those struggles were like. And I remember how little I gave a rip about all this stuff in church. I remember how little I cared about what the Sunday school lesson was about. And I didn't even grow up Christian. I grew up Mormon. So like, I, I didn't care at all. And yet, as I grow older, I realize how much what we believe about God shapes how we live. How much the object of our faith will shape the decisions that we make and and the the way that we make those decisions like if you are do if you are able it goes back to the object the challenge here is not just do you believe god or do you believe in god that's not the challenge here the challenge here is do you believe the god of the bible do you believe him who is able to do far abundantly more than you ask or imagine in Ephesians chapter 3? Do you believe in this God as he reveals himself in Scripture? So go over to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah 32. 27. This is God speaking. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And the answer to that is in verse 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Right? Do, do you believe that? Or is that just something that we read and say and, and recite? Is it actually something that you personally, individually believe? And then does it translate into how you live? Or are we like this father who's more like, I don't know if you're able to. If you can, maybe, possibly. 
Do you believe that? And so Jesus, recognizing this, is not content. Look at what he says. Go back to Mark chapter 9. The Father says, if you can. And Jesus said, if you can. Now, I think that there's an exclamation point there. And I think the way we should read this is like, if you can. Like, my, my ability is the thing that's in question here. And then he says, all things are possible for the one who believes. This is a call to confident faith. Jesus confronts the unbelief. He's asking, do you trust me and my ability? So at the heart, this exorcism is not a battle against a demon. It's a battle against unbelief. The issue here is not, do you have enough faith? And if you do, you'll get everything you ask for. The issue is more like, if you have faith, you will not put limits on what God can do. Belief, in other words, manifests itself in absolute confidence and surety that nothing, nothing is beyond the capacity or the ability of God. So let me ask, let's just be really real here for a second. Do you, do you ever struggle to think that God hears your prayers? I mean, geez, there's how many billions of people here on earth? At any given time, how many, how many millions or billions of people are praying to God at the same time? Probably, honestly, with stuff way more way more pressing than, than what, what you're dealing with at this point, right? I mean, the, the, the daily struggles of first world American life pale in comparison to the struggle for food in third world countries. And I mean, don't we think that maybe, maybe God needs to spend his attention over there and, and therefore just kind of doesn't have time or the capacity to be able to listen to to our little silly prayers. Right? That's how we think sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes that's how we approach prayer. And the reason we approach prayer that way, which leads us to, well, I just won't pray. It's, you know, I don't want to bother him. That comes from what we believe, right? That comes from what we believe about God. The, the issue here is a battle for belief. Surely, some prayers slip through unnoticed. But yet, all of those things that I just said are a contradiction to what God reveals about Himself in Scripture. He can count the hairs on your head. He knows the days that you will be alive. He has numbered them. A sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without His notice. Do you really think that when he says, pray without ceasing, when he says, bring your cares and worries to me, that, that he was lying to us or that he didn't have the capacity to be able to do that? Do you see how what we believe about God affects how we live? And so here, Jesus is not content with this father's if you can. He's calling him to believe totally, absolutely. He is calling him to believe that God is able to do what we cannot. 
and listen to the Father's brutally honest response. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. He's left with no option but to exercise what little faith he has in Jesus and call out in compassion for God to meet him there. He recognizes the insufficiency of what little faith he does have and cries out in a repentant plea for his unbelief to be helped. See, the problem with us is not what we believe, it's what we don't believe. And we use the faith that we have to ask God to work and grow the faith that we don't have. He is asking with the faith that he has for the faith to expect and believe the impossible, which right now at this moment he is lacking. So what do you do when you struggle to believe? What do you do when you struggle with your faith? There are areas we all struggle with our faith or where our faith is weak. So how do you respond to that? Like some people put on a good front, right? I, I know a guy. I know a guy. He's, uh, his, 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 at, his, his response, every time I see him, like, how, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Right? The dude had a heart attack last week. And I'm like, how are you doing? Oh, I'm great. Like, no, you're not, man. You've got no color. You can't breathe. You're laying in a hospital bed. You're not great. Like, some of us try to put a veneer on it. Some of us try to clean it up and make it look like, especially in, like, Christian circles, right? Because you don't want to be that one that's like, I'm really struggling to believe right now. You got to keep up with the Joneses, man. You got to keep going. You got to keep up with everybody else around you. And especially if you've got some friend over there that's just like going straight for it. He's got all the, he seems to have all this faith. If she seems to have all this faith, like, man, I got to keep up with that. I can't, can't really let anybody see that I'm struggling right now. Well, authentic faith will confess unbelief, right? Authentic faith is honest about where we're at. Some people, the, the fact that their unbelief is exposed causes them just to completely turn away from it altogether and walk away. And they just trust themselves. Like, I don't know if I can trust God, so I might as well trust myself. At least I know what I'm getting there. And the answer here is not to fake it or ignore it or brush it over with a veneer. The answer is to confess it in dependence upon God. And when our faith is weak, the exercise of weak faith looks like this man. I believe. Help my unbelief. And at some level, the call of this father is the cry of every Christian. We struggle to believe God as he reveals himself in, in Scripture. He seems too good to, to be true, right? I mean, can he really deliver me from this situation? Can he really love me in spite of my failure? Can he really save me given all that I've done? Can he really comfort me when I'm beset with grief and sorrow? Can he really protect me when I'm in danger? We all have this struggle. 
And the good news is that God meets us there in that place. And even on our best days, our faith is imperfect. And we need God to meet us in our unbelief and help our unbelief. So we bring requests, concerns, pleas, and cares with the faith that we do have. Asking that God would give us the faith that we lack and increase our faith. And then in verses 25 to 29, we see the willingness of Jesus to work through imperfect faith. He takes the boy. He casts the demon out. It looks like the, looks like the boy's dead for a minute. And then he uses this, Mark uses this very interesting resurrection language. He, he lifted him up or he took him up. Jesus responds by casting the demon out. The demon puts up a fight. And God shows sheer grace, mercy, and power in this moment. Now, there's an irony here. The Father says, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus helps his unbelief by doing what he asked for. Right? Do you see that it's small faith? The small, insufficient faith of the Father is where Jesus met him. He didn't say, like, muster it up, bud. Listen, let's try this again. Do you believe? No, like, give it to me. Do you believe? Like, you know, like some sort of you know, football coach on the sidelines. Now, yes, I believe. All right, there we go. Now that's what I was looking for. Let's go. Let's get this button demon out of this boy here now. Right? No. Here's this father who's sitting there and says, just honest, just brutally honest, I believe, please help my unbelief. And Jesus says, yes, I will. I will help your unbelief. I will, I will cast this demon out of your son. I will see. I will show you my power that you've been doubting and that you've been struggling to believe in a way that is so miraculous that you can always look back at that. You can always point back to that. And that's how God works in our lives too. He meets us in our weak faith and works through weak faith in order to grow our faith. Right? So imagine you're standing in a river. Behind you is a waterfall. There's a great big pool of God's faithfulness. You can look back. You can see all of the things that God has done for you, all of the ways that he has come through, all the ways that he has blessed you, all of the provision, all of the care, all of the sustaining, everything that God has done for you in this pool back here. But you're standing right here in the moment, and you're like, can I trust you to continue to do that? That pool back there is meant for you to look back to so that you can grow in your confidence that he will continuously do what is best for his people, that he will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his, pur- his purpose. So exercise what little faith you have and ask him to increase our faith. Now Jesus turns this into a lesson for the disciples. Disciples wait for a private moment. They want to ask him what went wrong with their attempts. And Jesus then connects faith and prayer together. He's teaching them an important lesson about prayer. And Jesus, I don't think, is saying, 
pray hard enough and the demon will come out. I think, he's, I think he's criticizing the lifestyle of prayer of the disciples. Jesus regularly went off and spent time alone with his father in prayer. The disciples regularly interrupted him for their own agendas. In fact, when he uh, calls his disciples to pray with him in the garden, they can't even stay awake. They fall asleep and he goes off on his own, right? And yet then we see in Acts the first thing that they start doing. They're praying in the upper room when the spirit comes down. I think Jesus is teaching them a lesson that faith is strengthened and accompanied by prayer. They, they, they work together. Because prayer expresses a dependence upon God, and I think that's the root problem that was going on with these disciples. They weren't doing this in dependence upon God. And yet Jesus' life was lived in dependence upon the Father. Prayer puts us in a posture of dependence. Faith and prayer go together. We learn from the disciples then what the result of neglect of prayer in our lives looks like, and we learn from Christ the importance of prayer in our lives. So I want to leave you with two questions. First of all, how often do you commune with God in prayer? I, I tried to find a way to say this that didn't sound like a goofy, nerdy Christian he is saying. Like, what's your prayer life like? Like, like, seriously, though, do you talk with God? Do you go to him in prayer on a regular basis? Do you seek his wisdom? Do you seek his guidance? Do you see his, seek his counsel? Do you commune with him? Or is it only when you need something or want something? Another way to say it is, is your life marked by prayerful dependence upon him? that flows from a deeply committed relationship with him. The second question is this. Do you bring your unbelief to God and ask him to grow your faith? Or do you hide it and try to clean it up and pretend that it's stronger than it really is? And do you place yourself in the streams of ordinary grace by which God will strengthen your faith? Faith comes by hearing. So this chapel exercise that you guys have here, that you guys do on a regular basis, it's not for somebody to come in and lecture you guys for 40 minutes on some topic. It's not a classroom exercise. It's not for you to be able to recite back the main points of what was just taught. It's to grow your faith. Because when we hear God's word, engage with God's word, God does something through that by the Spirit that grows our faith. Faith is a gift from God. You don't muster it. We depend upon Him to sustain it and increase it and grow it. And one of the means that He has ordained for that to happen is His word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. It is sustained by Jesus, and therefore it is dependent upon Jesus. But it can also grow as we exercise the muscles of faith that we do have, that God has given. So those are the two questions for you guys to discuss in your small groups. Does your life, is your life marked by prayerful dependence upon God? And then, do you bring your unbelief to God 
with what faith you do have and ask him to grow your faith. And, and, and in that, are you placing yourself in those streams of grace whereby he will grow your faith? So the, the picture is a confused crowd. Jesus steps into the confusion. He confronts the confusion. He brings the Father to him, addresses his unbelief, and turns that into a lesson for us on the importance of authentic belief and prayer because he's able to do anything. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that you have not left us as orphans but has given us your spirit, that you've given us these means of grace by which we can grow, that you are a compassionate and loving Father who meets us in our unbelief, and so we can cry out as this wonderful Father did, I believe, help my unbelief. Father, please expose those areas. Help us in that. We don't know unless you confront them. And then in that confrontation, give us the humility to exercise what faith we do have in dependence upon you and confidence that you are able to do far more than we can ask or imagine through the power at work within us so that you might receive glory now and forevermore. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.